Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you all this morning. Good to see everybody here bright and early. It's a really a privilege to serve on a staff like the one at Second Presbyterian Church where you know you're trusted, you know you're valued. Sandy had to be out of town today, and so he looked for the expert on the staff on today's topic and he asked me to do it. So today we're going to look at sin. Today we're going to look at sin and how to sin and what sin's all about, so I'm glad that I'm trusted in that area. Uh, we'll be looking today at Romans 1, uh, chapter, eight, uh, chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, the end of the chapter. And if you remember where we were last week, uh, we looked at Paul being under obligation to preach the gospel, uh, both to Jews and to Gentiles. Uh, and then we have kind of the theme verse of Romans in 1, 16 and 17 verses um, for the I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God, the salvation, both to the Jew and to the Greek, um, for the righteous shall live by faith from first to last, from faith, it will go from faith to faith. So we see Paul eager, desirous, under obligation to preach the gospel, and we have this beautiful verse that the, in verse 117, uh, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, that is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then we come to verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And you have a huge shift. You have a huge transition. And this is actually uh, the story of Martin Luther. Martin Luther, as a young monk, struggled deeply over this transition from 17 to 18. Because you read about the gospel, the righteousness of God, the glory of God being revealed... And it's a good, happy verse. The righteous will live by faith. They'll go from faith to faith. But then he read about the wrath of God being revealed. And you'll sense, as you look at those two verses, they're very parallel. The righteousness of God is being revealed, and the wrath of God is being revealed. And so you see the righteousness of God, as Luther initially took it, God's holiness, God's character, the nature of who he is and what he's doing, his perfection, that's being revealed. And then Luther recognized that God's wrath was also being revealed at the same time. His wrath against all the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And he, as a young monk, recognized that that unrighteousness and ungodliness wasn't just in other people. It was in him. Luther would often be in confession. Remember, pre-Reformation, all Catholics, so to speak, in Europe. um, He would be in confession three hours a day. Because he recognized God's wrath was being revealed against unrighteousness. And it wasn't just those other people, it was his own. So he would torment his confessor and confess everything he could think of. And thought, word, and deed, he'd confess it because he recognized that, that God's wrath would be revealed. And so it was a great tension for him until God opened his heart, opened his mind to understand the, the gospel, which he's going to lay out really in the next eight chapters. He's going to lay it out fully. So I hope that we will enter into Martin Luther's struggle as we think about the righteousness of God being revealed, the wrath of God being revealed. Uh, So let me read uh, verse 18 in its uh, completely, and then we'll look at it and then get going. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is a heading for the next section, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. Paul is going to talk about the wrath of God being revealed. Now, generally speaking, when we think of wrath, 
It's entirely colored by human wrath. Okay, we're afraid of somebody's wrath. In this room, we might be afraid of the wrath of our wife, right? Uh, might be afraid of the wrath of my boss, right? Well, human wrath tends to include the idea that it's excessive. It's not fully merited. There might have been a little bit of my crime, but generally the punishment did not fit the crime. It was excessive. That's what we think of in human wrath, somebody teeing off and blaming us for everything they could think of, even though only a small part was ours. Well, that's not divine wrath. Okay, divine wrath is God's righteous judgment against sin. It's God's righteous response. It's his holy response to rebellion, wickedness, to the nature of sin. So even though we don't like the word wrath, okay, that's because it's colored by human excess and by human limitations, right? There is no perfect judge. As much as we have some really good judges in our city, there's no perfect judge. We're not omniscient. We're not able to discern everyone's motives and not able to weigh and balance them perfectly, but God is. So when God's wrath is revealed, it's his righteous, holy judgment. It's his proper response to sin and only to sin. So he doesn't accidentally blow up some other things along the way. Okay, it's his righteous judgment against sin. And so what we'll see in the following sections is first, God is going to demonstrate his judgment against what we typically think of as Gentile sins, those non-Jewish people, the bulk of humanity, according, you know, as Paul is looking at it in his time, how is God's judgment revealed against the Gentiles? That's 1, 18 to 32. And then in chapter 2, we're going to see God's righteous judgment revealed against the Jewish people, the people who do have God's revelation, who God has chosen as a special, special people. How is his wrath revealed against them? And then in the first part of chapter 3 up to verse 20, Paul will conclude by showing that all of humanity, so by definition, Jew and Gentile, I mean, if Gentile means non-Jew, Jews plus non-Jews equals everybody, how all humanity stands condemned, stands judged righteously before God. So that's where the argument that he's going to set up. But there's also some nuances that you'll see, and we'll look at some of them today, that today... Paul is talking to an audience that he will assume agree, will agree with him, at least a large part of them, a Jewish audience. They're going to view these sins as Gentile sins. Yet that's what they do. But as we walk through the text, you'll see he's going to bring some examples up from the Old Testament. Guess whose book that is? <laughs> that's the Jewish book. So the examples he's going to list of sin are sins the Jewish people have committed. Because where we're going in this, and I hope that you sense this, as you read the Bible, humanity has a tendency to think when we talk about sin, we're talking about them, <laughs> okay? We're not talking about them today. We're not talking about the people not in the room, okay? The people who read this letter were church people, okay? So he's talking about us. And the bad news for us is if we think he's talking about them, he's setting us up in chapter 1 to get all of us in chapter 2, Okay? So you can be in denial today, but if you are in denial today, don't come next week. (laughs) Because this is all about us. So he's going to unpack that and describe God's wrath against the Gentiles, God's righteous judgment against Gentiles uh, in chapter 1. So let's look at verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, 
have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. What we see in these verses is that God revealed himself to us. It concludes with a statement, so they were there without excuse. And so what he's establishing here is that all men are accountable. We're accountable for the revelation we have received. And so he's going to walk through the revelation that everyone has received. The first thing he makes clear is that God's truth is plain. God has stayed here to be invisible, with certain invisible qualities, um, and that's part of the nature of God, right? We understand the difference between divinity and humanity because God is invisible. He's spirit, so there is this separation. There are things about him we don't know, we can't perceive with our human senses. But God didn't leave us in that state. He chose to reveal himself to us. He chose to make himself known to us in a way that is plain. What we could grasp as his creatures, he revealed to us. And he made it known to us in a way that we could understand it. So, of course, as humanity, there are things about God we cannot understand. We're not omniscient. We can't understand everything. And it depends on your, what kind of education you had. But most of us in our education figured out some of our limitations. There's some subjects, some ideas we could never understand. But God chose to grant the things that we could perceive, we could understand about God, and to make them known to us. He made it plain. He made it visible. He made it comprehensible. So before we go on, let's ask the question, what does it tell us about God that he chose to make himself known to us? He chose to make himself perceivable, knowable. When uh, our son was in elementary school, our son was a gymnast, uh, and we were going on a trip, Interestingly, I recognized the trip was actually here to Memphis. I was a missionary. We were living in Philadelphia where I was was doing my graduate work. Uh, And we came on a trip to the missions conference here in Memphis. We were missionaries in Central Asia uh, on furlough in the United States. And our son was in gymnastics, and he had a meet the same weekend as a missions conference. So it's a late elementary school. We decided he could stay with some friends and compete in his gymnastics meet while we went to the missions conference. But, of course, we called him each day. And the day of the meet, we said, well, How'd you do? And he said, oh, I did great. It was fun. He chose not to reveal that he'd won first place. Now, that was a sign of things to come. (laughs) He loved to keep his secrets. Uh, He made a bunch of uh, teams or got honors. He wouldn't tell us, so we had to learn to ask him specific questions. (laughs) He wouldn't lie to us. But he chose not to reveal certain things about himself to us because he thought that was great fun. What does it tell us about God? That he chose to make himself known. Was he obligated to do that? Okay, see, God was not obligated to make his character known to us. He doesn't owe that to us, but he chose to. Okay, this should communicate something of his loving intention, of his loving design, because there's nothing evil, there's nothing bad in God. Okay, so by choosing to share his goodness, his character, his plans with us, he makes, he's blessing us. So first of all, that tells us something about God's character. He's choosing to make himself known to us so we can perceive him. And that's the second thing. God's truth, uh, God's truth is perceivable. Let me read uh, Psalms, Psalm 19, 1 to 4. 
Probably familiar verses to many. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. There are things about God that are clearly perceivable to humanity. This is the doctrine of general revelation, or natural revelation, but general revelation as opposed to special revelation. General revelation is what goes out to everybody, everywhere, for all times. That revelation is perceivable. So that's what Psalm 19 teaches us. The heavens declare the the glory of God. That's what Paul is saying here. What can be known about God is plain because God has shown it to them. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. These are things that everyone can perceive. Everyone can grasp and understand. And as Paul says at the end, so they're accountable for it. We are accountable for what can be clearly perceived. The eternal nature, the divine power of God are things that are perceivable. Uh, think about the eternal nature of God. Think about the power of God. I, I guess, thinking about the, the power of God, we th- <laughs> many of us are enthralled by different things that produce power. Uh, and then you think of natural power, the power of the sun, the power of solar winds, some power that we can't even ever imagine harnessing. We're impressed with small amounts of power. Well, think of the power to run the universe, the power that creates, the power created by gravity, the sun rotating around the, the earth, rotating around the sun, and all these great forces. What about the power that controls all those forces? I mean, they're like unmeasurable. But what if you could even measure them? What about the power that generated and created that power? Okay, these are perceivable, comprehensible things that you don't need the Bible to teach you. We get a sense from the world that there is divine power. His eternal nature, which presumes eternity. Uh, We think about the beginning of time. We think about things that happened before and afterwards. We think about things, how long things last. We want to make things last longer. Think for a moment about the nature of eternity. I mean, what's the longest thing we can think of that something's endured? Uh, I mean, the pyramids, uh, the Great Wall of China or something. Uh, We think of things that have been around for a while, for some hundreds of years, perhaps a couple of thousand years. Um, Eternity. Unable to be stopped. Unable to find a beginning because there is no beginning. Okay, God's eternal nature is perceivable. He has made it known to us. We We are accountable for recognizing the power and the eternity of God. And God's truth is knowable. Uh, if you look at Romans 2, verses 14 and 15, when he's talking about to the Jews, he says, When the Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. What he's saying is there's some people who don't even have God's word, but somehow reflect the character of God in their actions. 
Now, you look at that next week or in two weeks. Uh, this is not saving action. But it shows that people have perceived the existence of God and something of his nature. And they live according to it, even those who don't have the Bible. See, God's truth is knowable. We have no excuse for not knowing God. And perhaps you're familiar with uh, some of the different arguments for God, but I'll just review them, uh, review a couple of them. The argument from design. You see, the world is clearly designed, and no amount of scientific discovery has pointed in a different direction. It's clear that there is an architect and a designer to human life, to the nature of uh, geology, to the nature of the physics of the universe. It's clear that there is reason and mechanism behind it. Some great designer has designed the universe the way it is. Even some of the theories of evolution have demonstrated that, the studies on that, but the uh, probability of evolution occurring unsupervised is scientifically irrelevant. It's possible. I mean, one in a quadrillion zillion or something. But uh, the probability is so small, it, it, it cries out for a designer. Someone must be guiding. Someone must be directing this whole process. And that's just one little sphere. Uh, again, the idea would be if you uh, were in the jungle and you came across an iPad on the, uh, on, the jung- on the ground of the jungle, no one would say, hey, look, look what grew here in the jungle. Right? You say... Somebody who made this forgot it and dropped it and left it here. Okay, so uh, the universe is a little more sophisticated than an iPad. The earth, every living creature, more sophisticated than the fanciest thing we've drummed up. It declares that there must be a designer. We're accountable for that response. Likewise, an argument that I think of, I contemplate regularly in our day, um, our moral conscience cries out for a moral standard. I haven't heard anybody in our modern liberal debates who believes in no moral standards at all. Okay? Everyone's arguing for their standard over against somebody else's standard. This is an argument that C.S. Lewis works out in Mere Christianity. Um, but the very fact that we have a moral conscience suggests that somewhere there's a standard that we're trying to argue for. We might disagree on what it is and disagree on what to call it, but it suggests that there is a higher standard. Because if there's no moral standard, then we're just arguing power, right? Who has more power to enforce my view over somebody else's view? But that's not the way people argue. Anybody that I've heard argue in the West anyway We're making a moral statement about why my particular set of views is more morally correct than yours, which suggests that on our conscience, we're convinced that there is a higher moral standard. Well, the logic of that points to a holy standard bearer. It doesn't prove that it's the God of the Bible, but in today's world, it definitely proves that there must be some moral standard outside of humanity that established this moral code that we're arguing for and arguing that our view is better. Well, that argues for divinity. So these are a couple of examples. as other arguments, but those are a couple of examples that demonstrate to all humanity that there is a designer. There is a moral standard 
and they come from a being, a unique being, uh, who we call God. One aspect of this I want to make clear. So God's truth is knowable, perceivable, it's been revealed to us. Um, But this general revelation is not enough to save a person, but it is enough to condemn a person. Okay, so the general testimony of God's existence is not enough to make known to someone that Jesus came to die for their sins. That requires what we, in theological terms, call special revelation. That's the Bible. That's the incarnation of God in Jesus. To understand how God saved us requires a special act of revelation. The revelation of Jesus, recorded in the scripture. We're talking this morning about general revelation, so Paul can show that everyone has been exposed to the reality of God. But that revelation is sufficient to condemn everyone, though not sufficient to save everyone. So that's the distinction between general and revelation. And he says, he concludes by saying, uh, so that so that we are, so that they are without excuse. God's truth is plain, it's knowable, it's been revealed to us, it's perceivable, and so we're without excuse. So how, do we, how must we respond? Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Our response, the general revelation, is to glorify him and give thanks to him. That's exactly what humanity failed to do. And you'll see this theme brought up again throughout Romans. You'll really see it brought up throughout the Bible. Because I think this is the core, this is step one of how sin works. We failed to glorify God, and we failed to give thanks to God. How do you glorify God? And again, think about general revelation. How, How do we do that? Well, it's, it's a response. When you see God's greatness, his eternal power, what do we do when we see some, something very powerful? We say, wow. And if it's a running back for our team, yeah, you know, we, we get excited. We declare praise in a natural way. Not because someone said, please declare praise. It's our irresistible response. So how do we respond when we see God's glory, God's power, his eternity, when we contemplate the reality of eternity? We respond in praise. We respond in wonder, in astonishment that is Godward directed. So first, we are to glorify God by responding in praise. And furthermore, we respond in thankfulness. And again, I think this is a core of where sin comes from. Because thankfulness requires a certain act of submission, of humility, of acknowledging that we are dependent, that we receive something that someone else gave. They're the giver, we're the receiver. And so there's some humility required. And that's what mankind does not want to do. We do not want to respond in thanksgiving. You remember Jesus told the story uh, of the ten lepers. He healed ten lepers, but he didn't heal them immediately. As they were leaving and going to the temple, that's when they became healed, became healthy. Only one came back to respond personally to Jesus by saying, thank you for healing me. The others were so happy they went on their way and they did not thank him. Well, the core of sin, something very specific that we can do something about, starts with a lack 
of thanksgiving to God. And you can feel it, can't you? I mean, if we were really thankful to God for all that he did for us, we'd have a very different kind of relationship with God. But how often are we like the nine? Wow, this great thing happened, and we're on our way. We're, we're moving on. We're making use of it. We're exploiting the gift. We're appreciating the blessing, but not acknowledging the blesser. Not acknowledging the one who gave it to us. Uh, some of us were recently on a trip to Africa to visit our partners with World Relief. We went to Malawi, and a different team went to Mozambique. And as I concluded our trip to Malawi, uh, I talked to our team about how, how do we process what we saw. Because you see, in Malawi, we're in the rural areas. The vast majority of Malawi is rural. And uh, as of last year's statistics, it is the poorest country in the world. Uh, they've had a number of economic issues that it's always been in the bottom 10 in, since the uh, last 20 years. But uh, last year, rated in the bottom, poorest country in the world. And so when you talk about people who live on less than a dollar a day, this is those people. But even that, I observed, is not a fair statement. Because when you think of a dollar a day, I tend to think of salary. Okay? Even as a minister, I get a salary, a paycheck, I've got a bank account. That's not how it functions in rural Malawi. Their livelihood is their field and what they farm. They're largely a non-cash economy, not because they're using credit cards <laughs> and smartphones. Uh, they're not living on a cash basis. They're living off what they grow off the land. Uh, they do buy and sell things, <coughs> but it's not their trade. They're not making a salary, a weekly, daily, monthly salary. They're selling a few of their products to get some cash to buy some seed for next year. Um, they're uh, buying some things and then selling them to get money for school fees. Again, there's not a salary basis. It's based on fundamentally what you grow, and then you have to make some choices on what you're keeping for yourself and what you might be able to sell, but everybody's in the same boat. There's not a collective store that you can sell it through, and so they're making some money, um, but when the year is bad, like this year is bad, so their seasons, they don't have summer and winter, they have dry season and rainy season, and the rainy season was not regular. It came late, it was intermittent, it was so heavy at one point they had a flood, and so their crops this year are going to be uh, are, are poor, which means during the dry season when nothing grows and you're living off the crops that you already grew, it's not going to last. People are going to die. That's what's going to happen. Okay? And like now is that time when it's going to happen. And so we get to be with those people, hear what's going on in their lives, lead them in some different conferences and seminars to equip them uh, in their church work, in their marriages, uh, in their communities. But for those of us who come from an uh, urban setting in the United States uh, where we haven't had to worry about those issues, it's kind of hard to figure out, how do I respond to that? I've seen that poverty. I've seen where they're living. Um, and now I'm going to get on my airplane, go back to the United States, and live in my life um, uh, where I, there's just so many levels, difference. How do I even process that? And I said, first of all, be thankful for what God has given you. Seeing people in difficult circumstances shouldn't, initially produce guilt, it should produce gratefulness. But how do we express that gratefulness? A phrase I could think of is, it, are we thankful or do we express smug entitlement? I thank God that I'm not like that tax collector, that, that woman over there, Jesus said in the parable, right? I thank God that I'm not like that, okay? That's not thankfulness. That's something else. And sadly, I'm much better at that one, <laughs> that I'm a true thankfulness. Thank you, God, that you have blessed me. 
that you have taken care of my health. You have taken, you've given me a home. I don't have to worry about the thatch falling off in a bad windstorm. Uh, I don't have to worry about if there's enough ground corn to make it through the next four months in my store. Can we be thankful, genuinely thankful for the many ways God has blessed us? And then to the team, I said, well, and then the next question is, can we be appropriately generous and engaged in serving our brothers and sisters in other circumstances? That my idea was to try to remove the false guilt and the lack of thankfulness to produce true thankfulness and true biblical generosity. But here the idea is, do we even know what thankfulness is? Can we say, thank you, God, for what you've given me? Instead of saying, thank you, God, that I'm not like them, implying that we deserve what the blessings we have. We really earned them. God didn't have to. I mean, it wasn't God's gift. He kind of owed it to us anyway. It's the way he's supposed to treat me. But that's not thankfulness. So how can we respond with glorifying God, natural praise because of who he is, of his wonder? And can we respond in thankfulness for whatever it is he's given us? Not jealousy, not covetousness, which we'll cover later, (laughs) but thankfulness, which again in the African context, our question was, can that produce godly generosity, a desire to walk with our brothers and sisters in other circumstances? Well, understanding Romans, you understand that we did not glorify God. We did not give thanks to him. So where did that leave us? Where did that take us? Let me read again 21 and go all the way to 25. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Here we see how mankind rejected this knowledge of God. Mankind rejected this knowledge of God. And it's important that we see the order. Improper thinking about God led to improper thinking about the world. You see, our psyche, our thinking, our processes are all interconnected. Man first began to think incorrectly, improperly. And incorrectly, I don't mean he just made a mistake. I mean, we haven't talked yet about this first word, suppress the truth, but we'll, we'll get to it in verse 18. Man understood who God was. God revealed himself to man, but man chose not to think correctly about God. And as a result, man's heart became dark. And I want to make it clear that that's the way it really works. It's not that men were out chasing women, drinking it up, gambling away all their money, and then realized, "Uh uh-oh, what does that mean about God? And then they changed their theology to fit their practice. That's the way we think about it today. That's not what happened. Man's ideas and perceptions about God changed first. When we view that incorrectly, that leads to, it inevitably produces, the fall into sin and the moral sin one to another. Improper thinking about the world then led to improper behavior in the world. You see, if we don't have a proper perception of God and a proper understanding of God, 
that always leads to uh, improper behavior. In fact, if you jump down to verse 28, it's not merely that man chose not to think about God. Since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Mankind decided that knowledge of God was not worth being retained. I didn't want to keep it. I didn't want to think about it. So I jettisoned it. Man chose to not think about God, to ignore God, to suppress the truth about God. And so as a result, all the immoral things that we'll read about in the conclusion of the chapter came into play. What did man do? There's some key verses in 23 and 25. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged, verse 25, the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was forever blessed. I had a great vision one year. We were vacationing in the Swiss Alps. My kids were little, had them in the backpack. We're hiking along through the Alps. Uh, the scenery is rather impressive. Uh, huge vistas. I mean, you, you can't even take it in. Uh, we're on one side of a valley, and you can see these huge peaks, snow-capped peaks, dramatic cliffs, uh, all different colors in the foliage below and the lower parts of the mountain. Just amazing, incredible scenery. We're walking along, looking at, across the valley. And as we're on this hike, about every 30 minutes, we hear noise. Brrr, a helicopter. And so you're looking at the great vista, Everybody, you know, there's dozens of hikers around, you know, within a couple hundred yards, and everybody's focused on the helicopter. The helicopter has a long cable from it and a container at the bottom, which I presume to be concrete. So what does the mind go? You think, okay, he's carrying concrete. There's a building project somewhere over here in the Alps, and they're making a resort or a ski lift or something very interesting. Um, and the engineer in me, I was an engineer for a year and a half before I had a higher calling um, in my uh, university days, Involved a D, but we'll go that later. Uh, <clears throat> so the engineer in me is thinking, how does this work? How do you get concrete, enough to make a foundation, some buildings, to these really remote areas? I mean, they're really hard to get to. And how do you get equipment there? And how do you, you start thinking about all these things, and what am I doing? I'm deeply amazed and subtly impressed with the technology and the feat to build an impressive structure in the mountains. And in that, I saw a picture of humanity. You've got incredible vistas. <laughs> You've got the Swiss Alps taking up more than your field division can take in. But what are we impressed with? A tiny little helicopter and a tiny little thing of cement. You know how many trips he made? I mean, I saw him make four trips in a couple hours, um, and that didn't make anything, right? I mean, he, he must have been doing this for days. And then I started wondering, how many trips would it take to make one Alp? I mean, you couldn't do it if you wanted to, right? I mean, you could make a concrete mountain like any one of them. We do this all the time. We're impressed with, we give praise to, we give attention to, we're secretly inspired by the little tiny helicopter and the little bucket of cement. While we ignore, or as the text says, we suppress the truth of what God has created. We do this all the time. We're impressed with ourselves. We're impressed with our ability. We're impressed with our decisions. Forgetting that even on a good day, <laughs> that this little bucket of concrete, the Alps are there. That's who God is. But we've exchanged the glory of God 
for things, the creation of God, for things that mankind created. We've exchanged the glory of God for creatures that he created and worship and serve either the creatures or idols that are the work of human hands. So in that, I see the picture of what happens here. We make the exchange. We begin to worship the created thing. And then when that shapes our thinking, we read all the things that, are, that are, come as a result. Now, here's where I want to point out a couple of uh, references. First of all, obviously, this is alluding back to the story of Adam, right? Uh, the phrase in 23, uh, excuse me, in uh, 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Okay, um, uh, where's the wisdom phrase? Anyway, they exchanged the truth about God. That's a reference to Adam. Adam and Eve had the truth of God, chose to believe the lie of the serpent, and that was the beginning of all of this trouble, right? But Adam and Eve were the first parents of the whole human race. But then if you look at verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That reference to idolatry also echoes the idea of the golden calf and also echoes the behavior of God's people. And that's what I was getting to earlier. The truth is, when we read these sins in the last part of our passage, we're going to see a lot of sins that Jews would have thought were Gentile sins. But if you remember the story of the golden calf, they worshipped and served a created thing, both the image of a calf that God created and the image that they themselves created out of the gold that they gave. They worshipped it of the created thing rather than the creator, and that led to this feasting and this pagan revelry of all sorts of immoral behaviors. Those are the Hebrews. Those are the people of God. So what I think Paul is doing is he's setting us up. If we think these are the sins of other people, he's reminding us that this comes from our history book. Okay, and again, if we played our history book, book up on a screen here, all the things that we've thought, all the things that we've done, yeah, most of us wouldn't want to stick around. <laughs> um, we have enough things from our history book to judge us. So these are not the sins of other people. They will feel like that and say, oh, good that God judged the Gentiles. And then in chapter 2, he'll explain why they're under the equal condemnation. But it refers back to Adam and it refers back to the golden calf. So I think we do have to ask the question, how do we view sin? How do we view the problem of sin? I think the problem is that we stick with the surface level issues. We look at a few behaviors, a few actions, and label them as sin as if that's the totality of sin. No, it goes further steps back. We have to ask the question, how do we view God? How do we respond to God? How do we respond to what God has given us? Do we respond in praise? Do we respond in thanksgiving? Is that a natural part? Well, when we don't do that, it leads to a different mindset, a mindset of self-sufficiency, a mindset of human-centered thinking that then naturally has its result. We will worship and glorify humanity, created things, and relegate the creator to the periphery or outside of our field of thinking. We'll decide that knowledge of God is not, worth, uh, is not worthy of our time and attention, and it leads to the sins that follow. So let's go ahead and read the big bad list starts in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women 
and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know that God, though they, excuse me, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Uh, yeah. We see where this all leads. As a result, mankind spiraled into a perpetually increasing cycle of sin. A perpetually increasing cycle of sin. In verse 26 and 27, he talks about the sins of homosexuality. I was so thankful that I got this passage. To a Jewish reader, to a Jewish reader, this would have been the extreme. So think about it in its cultural context. To a Jewish reader who knew homosexuality was already on the sin list from Exodus, uh, that would have been an extreme perversion, a gross excess and clearly sinful. However, logically, I think it's erroneous to indicate that this is somehow the greatest sin or the sin of all sins. It's simply an example that would have communicated clear excess, clear perversion to the readers. Natural relations. See, it's interesting. Here's how I see the danger uh, in the way we read this passage. For women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations. I'm afraid we think, I'm just being honest here, natural relations, a man has a desire for a woman, an immoral desire, okay, a desire for a woman who's not his covenant wife, that's okay, but that unnatural relationship for someone who is of the same sex, that's evil. It's like, no, no, no. (laughs) The natural relationship is still governed by God's word. See, heterosexual sin is just as gross as homosexual sin. It's not that heterosexual sin is okay. It's a natural desire, okay? He's still talking about covenant relationship there, okay? Secondly, logically, Paul is building the case of increasing sin. Homosexual sin is not last, okay? There's 21 words that come after it, 21 vices that are in verses 29 to 31. So there's not a list here that this is the worst sin of all sins, and thus we must somehow treat it differently. It's an example that would communicate clearly to some that sin has gotten out of hand. But it doesn't, make it, it doesn't whitewash heterosexual sin. Because then you see he goes on in 28 to, in 28 to 31 to list a whole slew of other sins. So all he's using that uh, example to do is give one clear example of sin. So please hear me correctly. Homosexual practice is a sin condemned by the Bible, as is uh, heterosexual practice outside of a covenant relationship with marriage with one wife. Okay, those are all sins, as are the sins... Let me get to the point. The point is, I'm afraid, some of us 
tend to view this sin as a way to say, look at those sinners. Look at what they do. And the problem is, ain't none of us are going to get out of here with half of these. I mean, you know, we're, we're dead on all these charges. I think the way we view homosexual, homosexual sins tends to reflect our relational closeness to someone who struggles with it. If you have a friend, if you have a brother, if you have a, a son or a grandson, uh, if you have an associate, close work associate, who struggles with same-sex attraction, okay, you view this differently, typically, uh, than those of you who don't have a friend or a close uh, relative who's in this area. Just because sin is difficult uh, doesn't make it excusable. It's still sin. But we as a group of fallen sinners need to have compassion in how we respond to those sins and how we interact with those people as opposed to somehow giving it a different category. We're all dead in Romans 1. And if you make it through Romans 1, you're never going to make it through Romans 2. (laughs) So we see, first of all, the sins of homosexuality addressed is one example. And then you have this this vice list in uh, verses 29 to 31. And really, there's no way to categorize those in a simple way. Uh, It lists specifically five of the Ten Commandments. And if you think of three that have sort of already been alluded to, uh, idolatry, and uh, adultery in earlier verses, you kind of get up to about eight of the Ten Commandments are listed there. It includes both words and deeds, things that describe the words we say, deceit, uh, and our deeds, but it also includes things like attitudes, heart commitments. There's several uh, vices that are in the pride family, uh, arrogance, haughtiness. Some terms are more broad, like evil and foolish, And there's even this fascinating phrase in there, inventors of evil. I mean, I think that's truer than we'd want to realize. However big you make the list, we're going to come up with another one. I mean, if you you have Ten Commandments, we're going to think of that 11th. That's a new kind of sin that, you know, even God didn't think of. So uh, we're inventors of evil. That's the nature. You see, God called his people to be holy. Our conformity to God's character was to be a marker that would set God's people apart from all the other nations. It, even Israel, you'll find most of these words would describe Exodus 30, 32, the golden calf. Even in Israel, there was often not a difference between the nature of the people of God and the nature of the people in the world. And then 32 gives us the conclusion, though they knew God's decree that those who practice this thing deserve to die, not only do we acknowledge that these things incur God's judgment and wrath, we approve this behavior in other people so that they can incur the same wrath and the same spiritual death. So that's the extent of sin. Every wild thing, every rebellious thing we could think of, we're doing and then inventing some more. We're encouraging other people to do it and approving of them, knowing that it would result in their death. So we hate our brother as we hate ourselves. That's the way sin works. It's interesting if you notice the way Paul describes it. He uses this interesting phrase, he gave them up. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. God gave them over to the sins that would result in their judgment. That's a component of wrath, a component of judgment. You read this in some different authors where God, giving you what you want, isn't the reward, it's the judgment. 
So he gave them over to their passions that they could pursue what he knew would not satisfy them, would not give them joy. So a concluding application. No, don't click your notebooks yet. I think we've got a couple minutes. Uh, <laughs> one, what does it tell us when we think this list is a list of sins for other people? What does it tell us when we focus on the sins of the homosexual community instead of the sins of the heterosexual community? What does it tell us when we focus on the sins of Russian and Chinese foreign policy maneuvers without considering potential sins of our own foreign policy maneuvers? What does it tell us when we deal harshly with violent crime while excusing and ignoring white-collar crime? I'll give you a personal example. My brother is an alcoholic. He might, I don't think he would, he might describe himself as a recovering alcoholic. I would not. I'm quite critical of his lack of progress over the last 10 years in his battle with alcoholism. It's destroyed his family. It's destroying his relationship with his children and his ex-wife and, and my parents. And it, it, it's causing a big mess. And I'm honestly rather judgmental and critical towards my brother. Um, but you know what? I've, since I was a early teens, I haven't struggled with alcohol at all. It's not a major temptation for me. That's not a difficult area in my life. And so what does that show me? I'm really good at being judgmental towards his weak spot. I got some weak spots. I got some sin areas of pride, of thought life, of the way I treat people. I don't think he struggles with. But somehow I don't pay attention to those, and I'm really critical of his one sin area. It doesn't mean his alcoholism is, isn't a sin. It doesn't mean he doesn't have to deal with, with, with that. But it reveals my problem. <laughs> okay, I don't have a problem with alcohol, but I have lots of other problems. Uh, you know, if, if there's 21 items on that list, well, you know, I got a good dozen that keep me busy for the rest of my life. What does it show us? It shows us the thesis of verse 1. We suppress the truth. God has revealed himself to us. And it's not that we don't know it. It's not that we didn't understand it. It's that we suppress it. And this is the doctrine of total depravity that is taught in this passage. Total depravity means that every area of our life is corrupted by sin. Every category, no matter how many categories you come up with, sin has affected it. And every time we hear truth, every time we read the Bible, we have something in our minds that suppresses it, that distorts it, that perverts it. We do, not them. We have a tendency to suppress, to pervert truth that we got from our father, Adam. And so we have to acknowledge that. And that's why we need some brothers. That's why we need the church. That's why we need the community of faith to help speak into our lives and show us where our blind spots are. My blind spot isn't being an alcoholic, but I have a bad blind spot in pride and a critical nature and in some other areas. So uh, we have to recognize that we're guilty of suppressing the truth. How would I finish um, our time together? Paul's gospel drove him to evangelism and missions. Paul's gospel drove him to evangelism and missions. How many of you would look at verses 26 to 31 and say, those are the friends I want. I want to find people who do all those things, all 21, plus the homosexualists. I want to do all those, and that's the friends I want to have. If, that's, if your answer is yes, we'll talk afterwards. Uh, I'll put it another way. My youngest daughter started university uh, about a month and a half ago in the University of Pennsylvania in the north. She got to talk from her dad about building new friendships, about making some good friends there, about who to hang out with. 
you think I said, hey, this is the top 10 list? <laughs> you know, find people who are just like this and make them your new friends. Of course not. Okay? We, we recognize the degradation of these flaws. Paul was obligated to these people. Paul gave his life to these people. He didn't do what Dan Burns does and say, oh, look at those sinners. They, they, have, they, break, they break eight of the Ten Commandments every day. <laughs> Romans is actually a missionary support letter. You get this at the end of the semester, chapter 15. Paul wants to go on to Rome. I mean, from Rome to Spain. He wants to get support from them. What does the gospel mean to Paul? It means he wants to be engaged in evangelism and missions. He knows there are people like this because he was one of them in his own way. He wasn't guilty of all these gross moral sins, but he was prideful. He was a hater. He was a murderer. And he knew God's power to save. For it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. So this sin list, our own sin, the sins of the world, shouldn't drive us to despair. It should, first of all, drive us to Jesus. So as we close today, here's what I would ask you to do. Take a real look at your sin. With the help of the Holy Spirit, because we will suppress the truth. We will not admit our sin. We'll admit some sin that we don't think is really bad to get out of it, but we're hiding four sins below that we don't even admit to ourselves. Will you in your small group, with you with your friends, will you... Pray for each other. Say, God, show me my sins that I might repent and confess them. That you might begin to work in me a new spirit. Confess your sins. And then allow that to drive you to God, to the gospel, to his love for you. And then with those eyes of compassion of a forgiven sinner, look around the sinners around us. And let the gospel drive you to evangelism and missions. Because God loves these people. Paul gave his life for these people. They were his friends. And many came to saving faith in Jesus. And it wasn't only his own community. He's raising support in Rome to go to Spain, to the ends of the earth, so he can preach to those wicked sinners and help them experience the power of God that will save them. Let the gospel of Jesus, Paul's gospel, drive you forward to evangelism and missions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious and loving God. If we were to give it proper attention, we would probably be dead on all 21 counts. Father, we have sinned, and it wasn't just our external behavior. Oh, God, how I have failed to be thankful for the small, medium, and large things you've done in my life. Forgive me for our lack of thankfulness. And how I've been fascinated by the little helicopter making a man-made thing in the middle of your Swiss Alps. Father, show me my sins by your Holy Spirit's As a master surgeon, would you open my heart, would you open all of our hearts to see where we have suppressed, we've been thankless, and where our thinking is simply horrendously wrong. Cause us to repent and turn to you in gratefulness for your mercy and forgiveness. And Father, as we see brothers and sisters, as we see people in the world who are struggling deeply ensnared and trapped by sin, cause us not to be judgmental, critical, uh, to think badly of them. But Father, send us forth that we might be your light and your salt to show love and compassion and your forgiveness and introduce them to you that you might, from the inside out, not the outside in, begin transformation in their lives, that you might recreate them to reflect your glory in this world. We thank you for giving us your word, that you did not hide yourself from us, but you made yourself known to us in your word, and most importantly, through your son, Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.